Hello and welcome to Prejudice and Pride. I'm Claire Balding and I'll be taking you on a tour of some of the creative, dramatic and surprising histories of National Trust places. 2017 marks the 50th anniversary of the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality in England and Wales. To celebrate the significance of this anniversary, the National Trust is opening up its creaking oak closet and exploring how lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans and queer folk have helped to both shape and preserve the house the collections, the gardens and the landscapes in the Trust's care. So over six episodes, we'll be exploring themes that give us an insight into LGBTQ history. I'll be speaking with guests in the studio and EJ Scott, dress historian and curator of the Museum of Transology, will be out and about to look at how these histories can give us a new perspective on Trust places. I'm so pleased you're joining us for Prejudice and Pride. Set foot in any National Trust place, whether it's a country house, a garden or a landscape, and it will be teeming with stories. Everyone who lived in or contributed to these places has left their mark. Some in the collections and archives of a place, others in the buildings, the gardens or landscapes themselves. There are currently more than four and a half million National Trust members who visit and enjoy these places, both for their beauty and for the fascination of the stories to be found there. As time goes on, though, we're getting a clearer sense of how many hidden histories there are and how, when we bring them to light, we can get a richer understanding of the past. Author Sarah Waters is adept at reimagining what's been lost or left out from recorded history. She's an acclaimed historical novelist whose works often feature lesbian protagonists. Here's Sarah to give us an idea of the kind of stories we'll be exploring in this series. Prejudice and Pride Back in 1989, a fresh-faced 22-year-old, I visited Sissinghurst Castle Garden with my first girlfriend. We went there not for the glorious garden itself, nor for the wonderful setting, but because we knew that its one-time owner, Vita Sackville-West, had had many affairs with women. As we wandered about, I remember that we weren't quite daring enough to hold hands – but I still recall the thrill we felt at discovering this semi-secret bit of our history. These days, we can all be a bit bolder about exploring and enjoying the UK's rich heritage of sex and gender diversity. I'd argue that without an awareness of that heritage, our experience of certain National Trust properties is incomplete. It deepens our understanding of Small Hythe Place, for example, to know of its connection with Ellen Terry and her unconventional daughter Edie, who lived nearby in a long-term partnership with two other women artists. It surely enhances our visit to Knoll to picture Vita Sackville-West stalking down the gallery in her Turkish dress as she showed off the house to her admirer, Virginia Woolf. And to tour Woolf's own country home, Monk's House, without acknowledging the fact that so many of its illustrious visitors over the years were, like Woolf herself, bisexual or gay, people like Lytton Strachey, Duncan Grant, E.M. Forster is to fail to appreciate the full boldness of the artistic and political unorthodoxies to which the house served as a haven. And what of the lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender experiences of the other, less visible residents of trust places, the servants, the gardeners, the chauffeurs? Most of their stories, alas, like other working people's, have gone unrecorded. But to acknowledge the potential of queer stories from the past is to open a space for their recovery. It's to find figures with the power to shock, surprise, inspire and move us. 
It's to build a fuller, more fascinating picture of how the nation's historic properties have been used and shaped by their owners and occupants and left for us to enjoy. That was Sarah Waters. In the wider culture of the UK, the last 50 years have seen tremendous progress made by the UK's LGBTQ communities in the quest for equality and the fight against discrimination. The Human Rights Act, the Gender Recognition Act, the Civil Partnership Act and most recently the Same-Sex Marriage Act in 2013 mean that nowadays we can live openly with our loving partners, rightfully determine our own gender identities, adopt children into our families and happily get married if we want to. LGBTQ communities are much more visible. Queer avant-garde theatre is thriving and bold LGBTQ and trans pride celebrations happen all over the UK every year. But this positive change was slow and hard fought for. It took a century to decriminalise homosexuality. And even after this landmark change, in 1988, Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government introduced the notorious Section 28, preventing the so-called promotion of homosexuality in schools, which in turn prevented teachers from being out, banned the discussion of LGBTQ people, wrote them out of history in the classroom and kept young people in the closet, unsupported. It took 14 years to repeal Section 28. Freedom and equality is both political and fragile. And the National Trust has a crucial role in educating people, young and old, about the real history of how people lived. The National Trust itself owes much to LGBTQ pioneers, such as James Lees Milne, who was instrumental in the Country Houses Scheme of 1937, The scheme meant that owners could gift their homes and estates to the trust in exchange for relief from death duties. It was an inventive solution to the looming crisis of country houses, many of which were at risk of being sold, developed or demolished, but which are now in the trust's care for all of us to enjoy. The diaries of Lees Milne reveal his conflicted sense of self and his affairs with both men and women at a time when sexuality was not openly discussed. His work built on that of Octavia Hill, social reformer and conservationist and one of the three founders of the National Trust in 1895. It was, coincidentally, the same year that Oscar Wilde was put on trial for indecency when he was charged as a criminal for his homosexuality. Hill coined the term the Green Belt, managed working-class housing for better communities and worked with the Trust to save great swathes of the Lake District from development. She shared a home with Sophia Jex Blake in the early 1860s and later lived with her close companion Harriet York for over 30 years and in fact they're buried together at Crookham Hill in Kent. Stories such as these are woven into the hundreds of places in the care of the Trust. So where do we begin? Well, with me are two people who can help. Rachel Lennon is coordinating and curating the Trust's Prejudice and Pride programme and Alison Oram has written the Prejudice and Pride guidebook for the National Trust. So welcome to both of you. Rachel, can I ask you why is it so important for the Trust to have made this really groundbreaking move? There are so many National Trust places that we can't understand, we can't fully appreciate if we don't explore LGBTQ heritage. Uh, So we've been researching some inspiring stories, some incredibly moving and tragic stories and just everyday experiences of the people who shaped our places. And if we don't 
include them, everybody misses out. So these stories have all been hidden in some way in the past. They've all been actively repressed. And now feels like the right time to bring them out. And how long is the project and what else does it involve as well as the podcast? Yeah, so the project is a year-long celebration, commemoration of LGBTQ heritage, responding to the 50-year anniversary of partial decriminalisation. So we've got the podcast, The Guidebook, that Alison helped co-author. We have web content, digital content, and we have properties from Kingston and Lacey in Dorset that we'll be exploring a bit more in this episode all the way up to Hadrian's Wall in Northumberland. And Alison, were you convinced that LGBTQ stories were there to be found inside the Trust? Oh yes, I think the National Trust is brimming with LGBTQ stories and histories. And of course the Trust's properties and gardens reflect wider British society, so of course we can find evidence of same-sex love and gender non-conformity in every kind of place and among all social classes because it's been part of our society historically. Why do you think it's important that an organisation as respected, as traditional as the National Trust pioneers this programme? Yeah, I think the scale of the National Trust really makes a difference. So we are um, a huge, one of the biggest conservation charities in Europe. We cross um, England, Wales, Northern Ireland, and we reach rural communities. A lot of our cultural heritage exploration of LGBTQ history does centre around our cities, particularly London. And that's that's not reflective of the past lives lived. So I think spreading out geographically is really important. And I think we're also, for many people, the, sort of the centre ground of the heritage sector. We do represent that national identity to a lot of people. And for the National Trust to stand up and to say, we're very proud to celebrate our LGBTQ heritage, does send a message to our LGBTQ audiences, and it sends that message of, we're for you, we are, our mission is to care for special places forever and for everyone, and we want to to really live up to that. And have you encountered any difficulties or surprises when you were looking for the stories? One of the difficulties of uncovering these stories is that many queer people have destroyed their personal letters and diaries for fear of exposure. All their family members have. Yes, indeed, yes, and they were often destroyed after death or indeed before death. Mm. And do you think that is part of a real reflection of shame, which isn't just about homosexual acts being illegal for men? It's also about a wider sort of social, the social impact of someone within your fold being gay or lesbian or bisexual. Yes, I think that feeling of shame was probably there amongst the families, not necessarily part of what those queer people thought about themselves. I mean, yes, in some cases, but not in others. And we might think of the trans community being something that's very modern, very recent. But in your investigations, are you thinking this is actually, this is something that goes way back? Oh, absolutely. Especially if we call it by, you know, more historically accurate names such as gender crossing or cross-gender identification. We can find plenty of examples of trans people or people who presented themselves as the other sex and gender during their lives. And there's another brilliant example with the Ferguson's gang. Alison, tell me a bit about them. Well, they were a mysterious group of people with a central core of five women who used pseudonyms to obscure their identities. And it's only really relatively recently, very recently, that more detail has been known about them. And they're important for queer history because they had a really diverse set of sexualities themselves. They were a kind of eccentric group of women who were really important in raising money for National Trust projects. They were particularly concerned to preserve 
rural buildings and parts of the countryside. So they raised money from a wider group of supporters who were also members of the gang, but it was the five women who really achieved the notoriety. So what's the time? When are we talking about? What year? The late 1920s, they start, they get going. And in the early 30s, they raise enough money to buy and restore Shelford Mill in Surrey, where they also had their meetings several times a year. And I think it shows a lot about who they were, that they they had their meetings, they had a kind of private language, almost a sort of mockney in which they wrote up the notes of their meetings. They disguised themselves and just loved dressing up and having fun. And for those meetings at Shelford Mill or indeed elsewhere, they ordered hampers of food and drink from Fortnum and Mason. <laughs> they loved food. They loved the countryside. They wanted to basically to preserve the countryside from the expansion of housing and really kind of overdevelopment that was happening in the interwar period. Perhaps one of the most important aspects about Ferguson's gang was that, that they staged these publicity stunts. They dressed up as bandits and kind of zoomed into the National Trust offices or sometimes in the middle of National Trust AGMs to deliver this money. And then they kind of whisked it off again before they oh, could so really, be... So, yeah, so we're yeah. talking about so, um, women um, masked. I, I always imagine them with capes. I don't know if that's accurate yes, I imagine it like that too. <laughs> but, so, disguising themselves under the, these um, cockney gangster pseudonyms to to fundraise for the National Trust, delivering bags of cash. It's, it makes yeah. me think of Zorro or, yeah. you know... Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. And of course, the newspapers were really interested and reported these events. And so they were among the first really influential publicists for the National Trust and the ideals of the Trust in that period. So they were really important in that respect. And Rachel, what do you hope will be the legacy of all the research that's being done? The programme and the research will leave a huge legacy, not only just across the National Trust as an organisation, but hopefully beyond. Uh, It's the way that we understand some of our places, the way we present some of our places has fundamentally changed because of the work in this programme and perhaps permanently. And that research isn't finished. As we've been saying already, it will be ongoing. It will continue and outlive this one year of celebration. But I think for me, the strongest legacy of this programme is about people today and about that instinct that we all have to look back to the past and to see ourselves recognised, to see something of ourselves in the way that history is presented. And particularly for children and young people, it's it's important to look back and to feel like you're not alone. So this is part of a much bigger project by the National Trust to present a great diversity of experiences and a great diversity of lives lived connected to our places. So we'll be looking at legacies of colonialism. We'll be looking at hidden women's histories like the Ferguson's gang. We'll be looking at working class lives in more detail. And all of that work will build on the legacy of the research and the programme this year. And Alison, it does seem to me this is a real shift. This is a change of mood music. This is a new chapter. This is everything you want, you know, all those metaphors that you want to use. This is a big change and it will therefore have a legacy. It will change the way history is is written and thought about from this point onwards. Well, I certainly hope so. There's often a feeling on the part of quite establishment heritage organisations that diverse audiences are out there, whereas actually queer people have always been National Trust members and visitors and supporters. And volunteers. (laughs) Absolutely. So 
you know, it's a reflection of various identities and senses of self and pasts that are already part of the National Trust. So, yes, it is stepping wonderfully into a new future and new kinds of histories, but many of them are already there. It's just sort of bringing them out into the light of day and popularising them. We need more and more stories about the people who worked in these places rather than those who owned them. We need to dig up more working-class histories of the maidservants and the gamekeepers and the estate managers, as well as the lords and ladies and the gentry who lived in those houses. Thank you both very much. Now to explore the theme of collectors and collections, E.J. Scott visited Kingston Lacey, a grand family home and estate in Dorset. Kingston Lacey was home to the wealthy, adventurous Banks family for centuries. The estate stretches over 8,500 acres and the jewel in the centre of it all is the house. It's a classic, grand country manor, but its light stone and ornate features almost resemble an Italian palace. That's thanks to its one-time owner, William John Banks. He remodelled the house in the 1830s, commissioning the young architect, Charles Barry, to encase the 17th century brick house in Chilmark stone. But this was not the only facade at Kingston Lacey. William John Banks was talented, successful and well-known, but he was forced to keep his homosexuality a secret. When he inherited the Kingston Lacey estate, he was a respected Conservative MP here in Dorset, despite having narrowly escaped prosecution for an unnatural offence, as it was referred to in 1833, thanks to the support of his powerful family and friends. Banks's real talent, though, lay not in politics but in collecting. he developed an extensive knowledge of both ancient art and old master painting whilst travelling in Europe. In 1841, Banks was again embroiled in a scandal involving a soldier of the Footscard in Green Park. It was deemed an indecent act and Banks was forced to live abroad in voluntary exile to escape the charges, which were, at the time, punishable by death. It was a complete and utter wrench to leave his beloved home. Indeed, for the rest of his life, he continued to remodel and redecorate Kingston Lacey from abroad until he died in Venice in 1855. So to fully appreciate this internationally renowned collection, we need to understand the life of its most important collector. I'm on my way now to meet John Chu, Assistant Curator of Paintings and Sculpture for the Trust. I think his research can help us shed some light on the life and character of Banks and his legacy here at Kingston Lacey. John, what were William John Banks's specialist areas of art and design? Um, so they were unusually diverse for a gentleman at the time, actually. So he had the sort of usual interest in the Italian Renaissance and Baroque art and decoration. But then there was this other interest in Spanish Baroque portraiture and religious imagery, and then really particularly this interest in ancient Egyptian art that he picked up on his travels in North Africa. That really was a specialist knowledge because many of the watercolours and drawings and much of the writing from that time is the only record we still have of some of those early sites. So he was very precise and very specialist in his And interest. obviously quite adventurous. Very much so, I mean... Much of his interest in Spanish art came about when he was actually following the army of the Duke of Wellington 
as he travelled through, as he fought during the Peninsular War. So it's very much, you know, war-torn period, and he's travelling and collecting during the Napoleonic War. You've chosen a particular piece for us to have a look at that you think says a lot about him. It's the Holy Family, isn't it? Yeah. But it's not just the actual painting, is it? Yeah, I mean, it's a really fascinating piece. What's really interesting is that 40 years later, he commissioned in exile, he commissioned from a, a Sienese carver this amazingly elaborate frame to house this picture, to present this picture in. And what's really interesting about it in terms of thinking about Banks and his identity and his identity as a collector is that all around this frame are small medallions representing the incredibly eminent collectors of this, former owners of this painting. So they've got the Duke of Urbino, the Duke of Mantua, Charles I of England, Philip IV of Spain. And it's absolutely extraordinary, legendary collectors. So he obviously really wanted to flag this up because the story of this artwork was really important. What's really special is that he wanted to make the Banks family part of this amazing story of this artwork. So as well as having the portraits of the four eminent former owners of the pictures, he has their coat of arms. And down at the bottom of the frame, in a central position, is the Banks family coat of arms. So rather than a portrait of him to match the portrait of these old owners, you've got the coat of arms of the whole family. So he wants the Banks family and not just him to be part of this story. But then also it's a way of keeping in touch with his family. So he has to send instructions to his family to enact his wishes for the collection within the house. So I do wonder whether it was a comfort for him, not only to think of his home over in England, but to think of his family as well. And he did write to his brother, sort of quoting an old Latin quote, saying, art is the ornament of the good times and the consolation of the bad times. And I wonder whether the consolation wasn't just the art, but this connection with the family that he managed to maintain in exile. Which is quite extraordinary because it's very easy to think that the family might be ashamed of someone at that time, particularly when they face the law and it becomes public knowledge. What we actually have here is evidence that that wasn't the case, that they maintained their bonds. Yeah, it's a continuity through these times of crisis and a sign of just the family affections overcoming social prejudices. Wonderful, John. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. My trip here to Kingston Lacey has actually revealed how William John Banks's values are so deeply woven into the collection here. The lives LGBTQ people lived as artists, as authors and as collectors are still deeply embedded in places like this throughout the National Trust. And just like the works they produced, their stories enrich our understanding of the places and works of art that they left behind. Thank you for listening to Prejudice and Pride. To hear more in the series, search for Prejudice and Pride in your podcast app or do have a look at the National Trust website.